told you guys we might try to sneak in a bonus episode or two, and that's exactly what we're doing today. We are joined by Miss Nyla Pipes of One Florida Foundation, and she's coming by to talk about the vast abundance of water that we have in the South Florida Water Management District system. We are loaded with water. So hope you guys enjoy Nyla. Nyla's been an advocate for Florida water for seven, eight years, a long time. And she's one of the most knowledgeable and well-spoken folks on the landscape when it comes to conservation, water quality, and basically just moving water around our state. So hopefully you'll enjoy this conversation with Nyla Pipes coming at you right now. Joined by Miss Nyla Pipes. Nyla, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. And if I had, this is not going to be your typical conversation podcast. This is going to be a little bit more um, spur of the moment. Kind of the the joke I make is we need some breaking news noise for this. Like a dee 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 underneath it. Talking about where has all this water come from and what are we going to do with all of it in the South Florida Water Management District system? So joined by Nyla. Nyla is someone I would call, me, Travis, would call a water quality expert, a water expert. I think you are a water advocate is kind of how you describe yourself. Can you kind of intro yourself, though, to people? Tell them who is Nyla Pipes? Sure. So water advocate is the term I prefer to use. Um, I work on Florida's water quality and quantity issues um, as uh, you know, from the seat of my executive director position with One Florida Foundation, which is an organization, um, myself and Captain Don Voss, who is now deceased, and another gentleman from Central Florida founded in 2013. So I've just been speaking on Florida's water issues for quite some time now and trying to work from a, um authentic position, one backed by facts and science. Yeah, I think I, that's the word I use when I describe you in any of these conversations. I'm like, oh, do you know Nyla? And of course, most people do know Nyla because you can't go to a meeting. You can't go to a, a anything on water quality or water movement in Florida, at least the southern half of the state, and not have run into Nyla. I've run into you from, I think, Gainesville to Miami. So <laughs> we, we see each other on a meeting schedule, basically. I, I put a lot of miles on my pickup truck. <laughs> and you're, you are now a pickup truck owner. I knew that because you used to have like a little uh, Ford Focus or something, wasn't it? Like some kind of little. No, a Toyota Prius. That's what it was. And I will tell you, I love my Prius. It got me a lot of um, good gas mileage while I was driving anywhere from the panhandle to the Keys. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm genuinely a girl who needs to be able to haul more than a Prius allows. You needed a truck. You needed to get back to your roots. I did. So I am going to ask you these two questions because I just feel okay. like it would be remiss if I did not. And the first one is, do you have strong feelings about pineapple on a pizza? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, I love pineapple on a pizza. Damn and it, even better, even better is if you add sauerkraut. Oh, my gosh. That's like, I, I don't even know what to do with that. Like that might get censored by iTunes. <laughs> this, that's like the grossest thing I think anyone's ever said on the podcast. No, it Italy goes so is on the good. podcast. It's, it goes so good with Canadian bacon. So. Oh my word. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I might just have to delete all that. Um, the other question is, what is Nyla's go-to boat snack? You know, I'm, I'm a traditionalist. I'm an oatmeal girl. Really? With lots of brown sugar and raisins. Yes. Wow. Okay. That's a first for us. And if I'm feeling really decadent, I'd like some heavy cream in there. 
Wow. Okay. That's baller. That's a that's a first for us. Uh, the closest I will get to oatmeal is a little Debbie oatmeal pie. Beyond, oh, those are good too. Yeah, but I ain't doing real oatmeal. Okay, Nyla. Uh, traditionally a snack, right? I mean, yeah. I guess oatmeal is harder to take in a backpack, for instance. Well, no, because I think that's a good camp snack. I feel like that's a good camping, like... And you, yeah. you, I'm going to add, I'm going to throw this in because our audience cast in Blast Florida, a lot of hunters, fishermen out there. You are fairly new to the sportsman realm, right? Like did you killed your first gator this year? Is that right? I, yes, I was involved in a gator harvest and very excited to, to have participated in that. Um, I had been on a gator hunt once prior with my son as a part of the youth hunt program. Uh, but hailing from the Pacific Northwest originally, growing up, I was around hunting. I did do some fishing out West, um, you know, as a kid, but primarily the men did that. And I'm not trying to make that a sexist thing. No, it I... just, it, it just was a more traditional role for the men to go out hunting. And, um, you know, we, we got to process it when everybody came back from the woods. Right. So it's not totally new or foreign to me. It's just participating on my own is, is a big step. Well, I think what is cool is you did the youth hunt with your son as the mom doing that hunt. That was really cool. Like you, you kind of broke out of that. I don't want to say gender stereotype because I think we're past that to some degree, but you really did. Like you're like, okay, I'm going to do this with him. And that was really cool. It was a phenomenal, phenomenal experience as a mom to a teenage son. You know, it just the bonding that occurred and, and, you know, the, the conversations and the laughter and the memories made. Um, I, I firmly recommend the youth hunts that moms participate in those with their kids, particularly, you know, their boys, because boys get into a spot, you know, where it's hard to find cool things to do with them as a mom. I think or at least things, yeah. things they consider cool, right? I think that's a good word. <laughs> Uh, outside what we're about to talk about. I think that's just good free advice. So Nyla, the question that I want to ask you, and this is the only real, I have two real questions I want to ask you, but this is the main one is anyone that's spending any time on, on Facebook in Florida and they, they, they are in any kind of environmental or conservation or hunting or fishing type groups have seen posts about all the water we have in South Florida. It feels like there is water just everywhere. We had record rainfalls in October and we are very wet. You know, that's that's just the truth of it. It's just, it's going to take a bit to deal with all of this water that Mother Nature has handed us. Yeah, so can you kind of take me through some of the challenges we're seeing even right now just from, I think Lake Okeechobee's at 16 and a half feet, is that? Roughly where we're at today, the day we're recording. 16.39 feet. Okay. Yeah. We're recording this on November 18th for anybody that's a timestamp guru about that. Um, (laughs) That's up to date, but that's kind of reflective of where the system is. Well, not necessarily, but can you kind of take us through some of what you're seeing in your conversations? Because I know that you're connected to like the tribes, you're connected to the water management district, you're connected to sportsmen. What are you kind of seeing out there? Well, first and foremost, you know, um, we pay attention on the Treasure Coast because we are affected by the releases from Lake Okeechobee to the St. Lucie River. So here in my own backyard every day right now, it's a conversation about how much more 
um, these releases, how much more of these releases the St. Lucie can handle, um, the estuaries in general can handle, right? So the Caloosahatchee side gets a whole lot more water than we do on the East Coast because the Caloosahatchee has a much larger river. It's purely a matter of being able to convey and move more water through on that side. So at the moment, we're getting um, 1,440 cubic feet per second down the St. Lucie. And the Caloosahatchee side, they're getting 4,120 cubic feet per second. The big thing, though, is what's coming in from the north. Okay. And and so, um, you know, I do spend quite a bit of time north of the lake, just, just immediately north of the lake. Okeechobee is, is about 40 minutes from my house. Um, a lot of my meetings happen to be over there. I also have quite a few landowners in the Okeechobee Basin and the Kissimmee, um, you know, basin that I know and, and visit. And, you know, just like everywhere else in the system, they have quite a bit of water to the north. And at the moment, coming into Lake Okeechobee from the north, we have 4,400 cubic feet per second. And that's always the case. You know, if if people were to really study this system, what we've done with flood control is we've basically built a great big funnel. And so water comes in from the north on average six times faster than we are capable of kind of getting rid of it when we're in these flooding conditions. I, I want to just clarify too, if you're out of state listening to this, when Nyla was just talking about Okeechobee, we, we use these kind of interchangeably, but there is a town of Okeechobee that is on the North shore of Lake Okeechobee. Yeah. And that's what you were, yeah, it's what you were kind of talking about. So when you talk about the Kissimmee <laughs> basin, the Kissimmee river kind of oversimplified flows from Orlando to Lake Okeechobee. And it, it runs through Lake Kissimmee and Lake Toho and a, bunch of Istapoga spills in a yeah, different known way as, as well. the upper chain of lakes and and of course Istapoga comes over from the west right um, northwest mm-hmm. but I just want to clarify that so when you're talking about these inflows you're talking about water coming from that system north of the lake all water in Florida runs south is that well all water in South Florida runs south Yes, all water in the South Florida Water Management District, right? And and that's important to clarify because um, on the East Coast up toward um, St. Augustine, Jacksonville, you do have the St. John's, which happens to run north. Right. But that's not not in our watershed that we're discussing right now. Right. I, that's That's an important caveat. So as we talk about this, just know that we're talking about South Florida Water Management District, which is 16 counties, Nyla? I think. Yes. Yes. It's a very vast ecosystem. And most people don't realize that's literally the entire Everglades ecosystem. When you talk about the Everglades or you read about it, you know, say in a National Geographic article, a lot of the time people like to think of the Everglades as this national park right at the foot of Florida, at the, right at the very bottom of the peninsula. But really, that's simply the park. The actual ecosystem starts just south of Orlando, and it encompasses this entire 16-county region, which is large. Um, to kind of put it in perspective, what drains into Lake Okeechobee is just shy of 5,000 square miles. Yeah, that's a really good way to look at it. And it's funny, you know, every year pre-COVID, we used to have ICAST, which is the big fishing conference in Orlando. Sure. And Shingle Creek 
is about 250 yards from the convention center. Mm-hmm. Right and, at the headwaters. Yeah. And like you're standing in this parking lot in the middle of downtown paved Orlando, everywhere you look, you know, there's theme parks and hotels and, and restaurants. And literally that's the start of the Everglades right there. And people like that's, I like to take someone from the show every year around the corner to Shingle Creek and show them, look, this is what we're talking about. Not this. Right. <laughs> so um, tell me a little bit like, I'm going to refer some to social media and you're super active on social media, but I've seen a lot of posts you guys have shared from folks like Betty Osceola. And yes. it looks to me like South Florida is just slapped full of water. Can you, can you talk a little bit about what we're seeing down there? Absolutely. So it's actually part of why we have the releases to the estuaries, right? Because right now we have absolutely no place or ability to send more water south of the lake. What happens, um, just kind of to back up a minute, a lot of this, I would say most of this, is due to the flood control system that we built so that people could move into the ecosystem. So what you were just talking about um, with Orlando and, you know, say Osceola County, um, even as far far south as Kissimmee and even, you know, Sebring is starting to develop more and more. Right. Like you're just starting to see more and more people move into the ecosystem with every paved parking lot. We create more stormwater runoff and Florida is a very um, swampy land. The whole idea as far back as, as people have been trying to develop Florida, the whole idea has been to drain water off the land to make that land quote unquote, productive, productive for people to live, people to farm, people to, you know, just live here and be able to have the lifestyle we have. We're all dependent upon the flood control system. But along the way, we made a lot of choices that have not worked out well for us. And one of those choices is we built the Tamiami Trail, um, the road that cuts, you know, from Miami over to the West Coast. And that is at the very tail end of the peninsula, right there before you get into Everglades National Park. And we have, in a in an attempt to keep some of what used to be the central Everglades, right, to keep those, those places wild and to keep some um, water quality and quantity control happening, we've built a whole system south of the lake to move water through and they, they consist of stormwater treatment areas and um, water conservation areas. And that's important because this is also the drinking water for South Floridians. So we've got this compartmentalized system that is highly managed with a canal system as we move water south from Lake O all the way into um, the southern reaches of the system. And Everglades National Park is um, honestly too dry. So when I talk about the need to get more water south, a lot of people are, are saying yes, south to Florida Bay. My main concern is first and foremost, we have to get it to the park. We can't even move the water the way we need to right now because Everglades restoration is all about replumbing this system so that some of the problems we're talking about don't continue. Okay. I need to ask some questions now. I know that's a lot. I threw a lot at you. You did. You did. So you're saying that ENP, that's the abbreviation for Everglades National Park, is too mm -hmm. dry right now. 
Yes. Why can't we get more water to it? What's stopping us from getting more water to it? So, so the biggest impediment is the Tamiami Trail. And what's happening north of the trail is nothing short of tragic. That's what Betty Osceola's videos and her comments have been about. Because um, as far back as June, the Mikasuki tribe, which she is, you know, a part of, um, and sportsmen, gladesmen particularly, which that's another protected heritage, a protected lifestyle within Everglades restoration. Um, they all have been raising uh, their voices and saying, look, the Cape Sable Seaside Sparrow, which is an endangered species, has been being used as a reason to not send water south um, through some of the only structures we have currently to do that, which are, are known as the S-12s. It's S-12A, B, C, and D. And especially S-12A, there is a Cape Sable Seaside Sparrow um, that supposedly lives there. However, the only problem is, is it's not one, it's a population. Um, the only po problem is, is nobody has verified that that subpopulation has been there for quite some time now. And so the tribe, the, the gladesmen, people who care about Florida have been saying, look, we cannot manage for one single species while we stack water up north of the trail in the water conservation areas and the stormwater treatment areas and and basically drowned out all of the fur-bearing animals in the central Everglades. And they're right. We cannot continue to do that. And so at the moment, unfortunately, with record rainfalls, which made our peninsula very wet, and then a tropical storm, Etta, which came through and dumped more rain, and I like to tell people, you can't put more water into an already soaking wet sponge. It just won't accept it. Right. So so what happens then is you get all this flooding. And the flooding is drowning out the tree islands, which are the, the traditional uplands of the Everglades, where the deer and the raccoons and the bunnies and all of those fur-bearing animals would traditionally go. And to, to explain explain that just a little bit better, for someone that hasn't seen it, you're talking about a sawgrass prairie, mm -hmm. and then you literally will have just a grouping of trees, right? And yep. The, and the, the marsh, and the, the muck, the trees hold. Yep, yeah. and the trees hold that dirt, right? So it creates this nice little upland area for all those animals. Right. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I I just no, feel like no, we're painting fine. we're painting a picture a little bit for some folks that may not be as familiar with the system we're talking about. And Everglades Restoration is a thing that is bandied about, and I'll say it this way: from a fundraising standpoint, from everything else, and in reality, it's a really complex, really nuanced conversation once you get into it. Like it's not yeah, it, it's not binary. You have literally hit on the reason that I continue to do this because. While I would like to say, just send it south, that really doesn't work because we don't have infrastructure in place to send it. Right. You know, uh, it, the Tamiami Trail. So right now, there are a couple of bridges that have been built. Um, we just had a groundbreaking to open up some new structures that are, are going to move more water. Um, one of the challenges is they're trying to move some of that water to the east and then down into Florida Bay, um, getting it into Taylor Slough, which is to, to help rehydrate some of that region. But 
that also gets right up against the developments to the east, right? So there's an area called the eight and a half square mile area where people live. Um, there's also the Eastern Protection Levy, which basically what people need to know is anything to the west of, uh, for all intents and purposes, I-95 used to be flooded Everglades. Right. It used to be where the water sat. And so this Eastern Protection Levy protects people in Fort Lauderdale, in Boynton Beach, in Deerfield Beach, you know, Sunrise, all of these areas that are highly developed and a lot of people live it protects them from flooding. And so until we get to a spot where we can more effectively move water out of the system at the south end with these major infrastructure projects that we are building in Everglades restoration, we end up in these situations where when we have this this wonderful gift from Mother Nature with a little too much rain all at once, we end up stuck in a flooding position, which is why we have to utilize to the best of our abilities the structure that we do have now, those S-12 structures. And I'm not saying that the Cape Sable Seaside Sparrow doesn't matter. I'm saying that the Cape Cape Sable Seaside Sparrow, that they haven't been able to prove is even where they say it is for the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years, to the extent that they claim. Right, right. It doesn't matter more than everything else. I mean, we have endangered plant species. We have endangered species in general north of the Tamiami Trail that are currently being drowned out. And we're losing their upland habitat because if you drown a tree island, what happens is pretty soon it just becomes marsh. Right. The trees die. The the dirt goes away. And, and we lose them. And we lose more and more every year. I mean, the resilience of the system, every time we stack water north of the trail, is being lost. Okay, so let me let me reset and explain or ask this question. You tell me if I'm on the right track, okay? Okay. And I'm going to ask some stupid questions. Um but but you so you have the Caloosahatchee River going west. You have yep. the St. Lucie River going east. And mm-hmm. today we're pumping water through both of those those rivers. Yes. Essentially to get it out of the Okeechobee system. Yes, because we, the lake is too high. Because the lake, the lake is, is too, too high. high. And and once it reaches a certain level, it then becomes a problem because the dike could possibly give out. And they've been working on the dike for years and they're working to, to fix that. But there are people south of the lake and not, not just in the small communities immediately south, but as far south and southeast as West Palm Beach, there are people being protected by that levee. And we can't drown the lake out either. The lake is its own ecosystem. So okay. there are a number of reasons we need to drain the lake. Yeah. So so you've got four S-12s that do mm-hmm. actually move water south, right? Yes. However, whether or not they are open is dependent on this sparrow's breeding season, nesting season, whatever. Right. Yes. It's it's kind of like a Goldilocks of birds. It needs enough water, but not too much water. Right. And then what other water or, or the Tamiami Trail, US 41, that runs across the southern tip of the state. I don't think we explained this well, is basically a packed roadbed. It was built, what, in the 30s, 40s, 50s? Like middle, um, middle of the century? Oh, you're, you're really quizzing me. I, I'm thinking late. 20s early 30s okay but it's a it was basically a packed roadbed with no ability to move water under it so when nyla mentioned a minute ago that we've raised some bridges we've literally raised those bridges so you could recreate 
uh, the concept of sheet flow for water. Right? Absolutely. Yes. And there are also some culverts. This is another area that we advocate for improvement. Um, there are some culverts that could be cleaned out and utilized better. But in agency world, there seems to be some conversation about who's responsible for that and who can make that decision. So, you know, bureaucratic red tape also gets in the way and causes some challenges. <laughs> So the other question I want to ask as I'm just kind of describing this, if you think of what we'll call the Everglades system, we're not talking about EMP, but we're calling it the Everglades system, water really goes one of two ways, right? It goes out to the west or it goes through Taylor Slough, which is due south. Is that accurate? Sure. Um, southwest through, you're talking about the natural system. How yeah, it's supposed yeah. The, to go? the way it was originally. Okay. When people say, let's put back what nature intended. They're, they're, we've talked about this offline before, but this is kind of an arbitrary thing. But really, the water wants to move one of those two ways. Yes. And the majority of it used to go southwest. Right. And we're trying to get more moving that direction. But at the moment, what we've done is we've created a canal system that is sort of moving more water down through Taylor Slough. And, and to do so, it's a canal system that literally takes a hard left turn and then a hard right turn. It literally it, is channelized water. Yes, it's ch channelized water. And so um, there's also another Everglades restoration project, which Everglades restoration is made up of 68 various projects and they're large projects. You know, we're talking infrastructure that takes many, many years and billions of dollars to complete. Um, the Western Everglades Restoration Project, and it's been um, controversial because the um, various biologists and ecologists and engineers and hydrologists that are all involved in Everglades Restoration have put together a plan that will um, move more water into the Big Cypress, which is to the west, the southwest, but as Miss Betty Osceola accurately points out, they haven't really shown us how they're going to get that water out. And so there's a lot of conversation about what would have happened in today's current setting with too much water if the Western Everglades Restoration Project had been put in place already. And that's a great question because it, it really is important to note that as we move forward with every one of these projects, we not only have to be cautious and cognizant about what today's Everglades look like, but also what the Everglades of the past look like and, and try to let that past guide us. So it's, again, as clear as mud, right? I think that's a, that's a great perspective because we interviewed the guy that did the South Florida deer study, Dr. Richard mm -hmm. Chandler, a while back. And from a sportsman's perspective, if you look at WERP, WERP sounds really good from a restoration standpoint, right? Like it's it yeah. sounds good on paper, and I'm not against it. I'm not advocating one way or the other, but I am saying it sounds really good on paper. But from a sportsman's perspective, it could have some serious impacts because hydrological factors are one of the, no, they're the single largest impact on the deer herd in South Florida. And so man, you're, you're really asking me to make some hard choices in that conversation. Right. And, and 
I think for a lot of our audience, that becomes a very real tangible thing that sometimes gets overlooked because how many hunters exist in the state and how many are being impacted by this very small percentage, right? But sure. it's still important on the landscape and it's still important, obviously, to the tribal folks, to the gladesmen, to the and also to a lot of recreational guys that, that use that area. Well, and, and this brings it right back home, right? So at the moment, if I were to simplify it, what I'm saying is we cannot send more water south from the lake right now because we've had really wet conditions. We don't have a way to get that water moving out as quickly as we need to. And, oh, by the way, when I talk about the tree islands being drowned, what I'm really saying is there's nowhere for these poor deer to go. Right. And so what what we are currently seeing is deer up on the levees of this compartmentalized system that we've built fighting for their lives. Right. You know, when, when you see videos of 15, 20, 30, 35 deer all just in a herd up on the levee, you know that what we're doing right now is not right. right. It's not work. It's not working. The other thing I want to do is I want to ask you, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit so you can get close. I'm not going to hold you to this. Okay. No, I'm not going to <laughs> okay, let anyone good. send you hate mail about your answer on this, <laughs> but roughly how many people live South of Lake Okeechobee in Florida? Uh, 8 million. I, I think eight, eight and a half is the number that I keep hearing thrown around. So that's, roughly half of the state's population. I mean, it's more than yeah. a third. It's not quite a half. It's it's a lot of people that are and, dependent and, on this system not flooding their houses. Yes. And to further, to further bring home your point, those people primarily live um on the coast, right? So right. they're they're east of I-95. Um, and they are west of I-75, you know, for all intents and purposes. And that's another part of why we can't get enough water moving fast enough. Because what has really happened is all of those regions also got all this rain and also had all this flooding. And so the local flood control system, you know, we're talking the inlets that go out to the Atlantic and, and to the Gulf side, we're talking all of those canals in your backyards in South Florida. Every bit of that local system was also inundated with all this rain. And so the local system canals fill up. The local system has to move water out before the interior can also be drained, right? So there's always this this kind of fight when this happens where people go, yeah, but you know, the people in the agricultural areas filled up all the canals. Right. Okay. Yeah. But so did the people on the coast. Right. So did the people in the urban areas, you know, and so we just have to always be cognizant of that and be, be fair and accurate about that conversation because like it or not, we all live here and we have to find a way to live here that hopefully is less impact than we are currently seeing. Let's look at, let's put, I'm going to put you on the spot again because you brought it up. Um, you mentioned agriculture. Yes. Agriculture gets demonized in this conversation quite a bit. Can you talk about how that's unfair? So, and I'm not trying um, to ask that in a leading way. No, I'm, no, I'm no, asking no, no. that I, as a person that kind of believes it from a ranching perspective, from a, from a crop perspective, whatever. 
So I'm going to walk through the system north to south and talk about that because it's important, I think, for people to know where we're talking about agricultural lands in the state of Florida. Sure. So, so north of the lake, that center portion, you know, the Kissimmee Basin is primarily cattle, um, a lot of unimproved pasture. And what they do north of the lake is a lot of water retention. And um, there are challenges with water quality, right? Um, and we've been talking about water quantity because of, of the current situation. But hand in hand with that goes water quality. Um, a lot of the time, those ranchers north of the lake get blamed for all of the water quality issues. Right. Um, I also do not think that is fair. And the reason I say that is because there is just there, the reason that they that they get blamed for it is because that is the major land use in the basin, right? So the the more land you have in ag, of course, the bigger their impact is going to be. But you also have to consider at the headwaters, as we talked about earlier, there's major development. And all throughout the system, along every water body. All that upper chain of lakes that we talked about earlier, the Lake Kissimmee, Lake Tiger, Lake Toho, all of those, those you know, lakes, they also have development on them. Um, sewage in the state of Florida is a major source of both nitrogen and phosphorus. Took you 30 minutes um, to mention sewage. Just, I just want to point I that know, out. That's it a took record. You 30 minutes that's to get a there. record, isn't it? <laughs> um, during Hurricane Irma, for instance, I happen to know that an entire sewage treatment plant um, in, I believe it was Kissimmee, um, definitely Osceola County, uh, an entire sewage treatment plant went completely underwater for days. Yeah. And that, it doesn't work at that point for those keeping score at home. It's yeah, not it, it's functioning just, you anymore. might as well have just gone outdoors. Yep. <laughs> yep. Um, and, and septic tanks, you know, we also have, and, and I actually have a nickname. People call me old septic pipes and, and they thought it was going to be an insult. And I just laugh. I think it's great. Um, <laughs> so septic tanks are one of the number one things that I talk about when I talk about um, the issues throughout the state and in the Kissimmee basin, in the Lake Okeechobee basin, right? That, that nearly 5,000 square miles. Um, we have 124,176 septic tanks, according to the Lake Okeechobee Basin Management Action Plan. Um, numbers I think they got from the Department of Health. Yep. DEP. That's or, a Yeah. DOH. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot of septic tanks in that basin. And when so a septic, septic tank is covered in water, it also ceases to function. Yep. <laughs> correctly. Yep. Yep. It, it just flushes, right? And, and it just flushes all those nutrients right out with your stormwater. So um, I always tell people, look, I know it's fun, but don't play in your stormwater. When, when it floods like this, it's not cool to go out there and, I don't know, take your pool floaty and float down the street. Right. That's really dangerous. Right. That stormwater is full of fecal bacteria. So, you know, just there's another PSA for the day. So um, you talked about ag north of the lake. Which is, yes. and, and so, I'll say this really quick. We interviewed earlier this year, and I'll try to put links to him. Um, we interviewed Brad Ferris, who's a mutual mm -hmm. friend of ours, uh, and, yep. and talked about his ranch and their usage. And he is on literally the north shore of the lake. And we also yes. talked uh, uh, to Mr. Matt Ferris or Matt Pierce, who um, his ranch is 
what Nyla, a half mile, a mile north of the lake. Yeah. Like it's not far off the lake north of there. Yep, right there in that same region. Mm-hmm. And those are both areas where those guys have huge pride in their land. Um, yes. They don't over fertilize. They're trying to be good stewards. They do a really good job. There's a lot of wildlife on their land. Um, they're, they're doing, they, they're enrolled in BMP, best management practices. So I, I think it's, it's really hard for us. It's really hard for me to see them get blamed for a lot of the problems in the system. And I, I felt well, like that was Well, and that's, mentioned. that is absolutely worth mentioning. And I will add to it by saying that um, I have yet to meet a landowner who is out to ruin Florida, right? They 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 hunt, they fish, uh, they swim, they boat. They live here and love it for all the same reasons we do. But they also happen to provide a lot of services, right? So, yes, there are water quality issues that can come along with agriculture, but they are also regulated, and they do have things that they do on their land. They're they're um, BMPs, right? That they they try to implement um actually they're they're required to enroll in a bmp program or self-monitor right it's not it's not nearly as voluntary as people think it is right um bmp's best management practices um for anybody who doesn't know that one so so they work hard at it and and the other thing i will say is florida is naturally high in phosphorus i mean that's that's just a fact it's it's what it's what our state is made up of. That's that they mine phosphate here, particularly <laughs> South Florida. Yes. So there's that part of the puzzle that I don't think um, we talk enough about, you know, so there, there are unknowns in some of this and, and there are more monitoring stations being put in and there's more science being done, both from the agency standpoint, but also from the ranchers themselves. You know, they've put together entire ranches that are all about the science and all about trying to do better and do more. Um, and I will say they hold more water on their land than the city of Orlando does. Right. I can guarantee it. Right. And they provide more habitat than the city of Orlando does. You know, and I'm not picking on Orlando. It's just that I'll they are at the headwater. They are at the headwaters and they are a large city. And and you know, you can say that about every city along the way. And so the last crop is always rooftops. Yes. It always will be and it always has been. And so if we don't help agriculture in the state of Florida stay in agriculture then we are literally inviting the entire state to turn into development. Yeah, you did You did misspeak there because you said you've never met a landowner that wanted to ruin the land. And I was going to ask if you had met developers because I do well, know some of them that are... Now, that's not to, to paint them all no, with a broad brush, but... Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. <laughs> I'm in an agricultural landowner, so I'll add that that, you know, pinpoint on it. All right. Um, I want to, I want to so, ask so a question. So we've talked about North. We've talked about North. Um, yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt no, you. No, no, you, that's where I was going. Okay. So South of the Lake is a completely different kind of agriculture. Yeah. I mean, there are some ranches South, but, but it, it's primarily um, sugarcane and vegetables. But the important part about South of the Lake is it's a completely different soil makeup. So north of the lake is karst limestone and a lot of sandy soils, and it's very um, transmissive or leaky, as I like to say, right? So when Lake Okeechobee rises, the water table throughout that region rises, water stays on the lands north of the lake more. 
south of the lake um, is what used to be a pond apple forest, and it was a bird rookery, naturally. And then when the lake overflowed, when it got really high back in the day, before the dike was built, when when we had these really big wet seasons like we've just had, that's also the primary direction that the water did move. And so that took with it any, um, you know, vegetation that had broken down any muck soil and so over eons south of the lake the sandy soils then turned into right muck soils peat wet peat and and that's why agriculture discovered the region south of the lake and and honestly Lots of people like to say, oh, sugar south of the lake, you know, it all it's all because of Cuba and all the sugar growers moved in. And sugar did definitely expand, you know, because of what happened in Cuba and more people coming and, and settling there. But the fact of the matter is, is growing south of the lake has been occurring since the late 1800s. There are lots of pioneer families in that region known as the Everglades Agricultural Area that have been there since the late 1800s. Sugar cane has always been a part of that mix, um, but it very definitely is a mix. You know, they they like to say, oh, big sugar. Big sugar is the big, bad, evil, you know, empire for a lot of people in this conversation. And I've spent time getting to know those families, getting to know that the history and the heritage in that region. And I will say that, yes, there are corporate sugar organizations, you know, corporations down there that are big, you know, U.S. Sugar and, of course, Florida Crystals. However, the majority of people working in that industry are small landowners or lease, you know, people who lease land. And what they do is they haul their crop into the larger mills. You know, you've, that's why you have a co-op, the sugar growers co-op. And there is a lot more grown there than just sugar. Um, kale, uh, peppers, radishes. I mean, just about any vegetable, green beans, uh, sweet corn. They're very, very well known for the sweet corn. Um you know, your spring mix. I mean, just about every vegetable that you can imagine grows in the Everglades agricultural area south of Lake O. And that's because those soils are so beautiful and conducive and rich. The beauty of that is, is that also means that they don't have to put down a whole lot of fertilization. And like it or not, sugarcane is actually one of the best crops they could be growing south of Lake O. Because with every harvest, they actually export more phosphorus than they ever put down. Right. And, and so they've become a part of what we call the treatment train south of the lake. So Lake Okeechobee, the water in the lake is higher in nutrients than the water that comes off of the sugar cane fields. Right. And then it goes to a stormwater treatment area and then into the water conservation areas. And we are actually meeting the goals in order to send clean water south of the trail when we are capable of doing so with capacity reasons, right? Um, we are meeting the goals that have been set out in lawsuits that have come long before my time in this conversation. You know, there've been lawsuits back in the nineties. Um, and, and there are exceptions. There are a couple of places where a canal is still putting too much in because it's a concentrated amount. Right. There's still work, work to be done, 
But by and large, farmers south of the lake are not responsible for that, and they're doing a good job. Right. So, you know, again, if we want to get rid of ag, great, but you might as well expect, you know, Fort Lauderdale West. <laughs> it's, you know, that that's how that's how some of these communities spring up is because they're no longer able to make their land productive and provide for their families and, and have the future that they did have because they're they're regulated into compliance but also a lack of existence. Yes. And to, to me that's the scariest thing. Let me ask you a couple of quick hit questions. Um, you mentioned the STAs in the water conservation areas. Today they are way high, right? Inundated. Like yep. like way above what we want them to be, even for the yes. systems to work effectively at clean water, I would think. I don't know that to be true, but I would think there's a lot no, of water. No, you're absolutely on them. you're absolutely right. So the stormwater treatment areas particularly are an investment that the state of Florida, i.e. you and I as taxpayers, have made. And that investment right now is being um, tasked with an impossible task. Um, what they did is they went in and they carved out an area for water to filter through and they planted plants that are really good at filtering that water. It requires what is known as residence time. And basically what that is, is how long does the water have to sit there in that stormwater treatment area for the plants to take the nutrients up and, and basically eat those nutrients, right? to remove it from the water right? and how long, you know, does it take for that to settle out? That's, that's how they talk about it. So residence time is required, which means we can't move too much water through too quickly because you don't get the residence time. Furthermore, in a situation where those stormwater treatment areas are too high, it literally drowns the plants and they don't function. They die and then they become muck. And then we have to go in and we have to um, rehab Take stormwater it offline treatment areas. Or yep, yep, exactly. Dig that muck out, replant new plants. It's quite frankly a waste of taxpayer dollars. If we can avoid shoving too much water through them too quickly and drowning them out, we are saving ourselves money and we are making sure that that treatment train continues to work south of the lake. And we're using aquatic vegetation to do it. Yes. Yes. Which a is natural, a, yeah. quote unquote, natural process. Right. <laughs> so I, I wanted to bring that up because I thought that was an important thing. Another quick hit question I, I, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned that Everglades restoration, um, is it, is it SERP? that has 67 projects, comprehensive Everglades restoration plan? Yeah, I, I believe the number is 68 is the comprehensive Everglades restoration plan. And 68 you projects. Can, you can literally go dig into this um, at evergladesrestoration.gov. Um, it's all managed on a schedule known as the integrated delivery schedule. And that's where you're going to find all these Everglades restoration projects. So if you're interested in a particular project, like the one that is in the news the most, um, the Everglades Agricultural Area Reservoir, right? The EAA Reservoir and Stormwater Treatment Area that they're working to build right now. If you wanna know how much that project's gonna cost, how long they project it's going to take, those sorts of things, 
it's all on that integrated delivery schedule. Nyla, uh, is there, and I know you're quote unquote not an expert, but is there any one project that's more important than any of those other 68 to get this restoration done? Uh, so there are projects that we have fast tracked that are a part of SEP, <laughs> another acronym for you. Um, that's the Central Everglades um, planning, planning project. Yes. The EAA reservoir is one of those. Um, however, and I think this is what you're getting at, uh, we get into a dangerous game when we start saying this project is the most important project and it's going to fix everything because it's simply not true. Right. And, and so what I tell people about the Everglades Agricultural Area Reservoir is it's a very important key component of Everglades restoration. However, it's like putting in a really fancy kitchen sink without making sure that the plumbing in the cabinet below is adequate and going to get the water all the way out to the street. And without making sure that we have shut off the faucet, so to speak, coming in from the north. So yes. it's not going to operate and give us a stop to the discharges, which is everybody wants that, right? Everybody wants us to just stop the releases to the estuaries. It is not ever going to give us that. Um, and it's particularly not going to give us that if we don't turn the faucet off coming in from the north and make sure we open up those problems down south at the Tamiami Trail. So I have a, a kind of a tangential question to all of this that we've been talking about. And that is, it feels to me like back in March, April, May, there was a whole lot of talk about we need the lake lower so we don't have discharges. We need the lake lower so we don't have discharges. Am I remembering that correctly? You are. Um, a lot of headlines. Congressman Brian Mast really pushed for that effort here on the Treasure Coast. Um, my answer to you is if it were that easy, it would have been done already. Yeah, I was it sim simply doesn't work. Right, because I'm looking at a chart that um, Katrina Elskin put together, but she got all this data from the Corps of Engineers of the lake level on June 1st and were there discharges or releases, depending on which coast you're on, you use different terms, I think. Um, 2008, nine and a half feet, and they had discharges. 2017, 10 and a half feet, almost 11 feet. They had discharges. This year, what did we get down to? It was like 10, it was right at 11, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, 11 feet on May 17th was our low point. Right. And, and during that time period, by the way, we were also in a pretty good drought and we were having all kinds of issues as a result of that. And that's where I was kind of leading with that question is there were issues with people worried about water supply, right? Not just EAA farmers, but like municipalities. Right. So um, Lake Okeechobee is the backup water supply for South Florida. Um, that's built in as a part of the Lower East Coast water supply plan. And we were just shy of having some pretty good water shortages on the East Coast. Additionally, on the West Coast, they were in drought longer than we were on the, the East Coast. Um, Lee County went into some pretty good water restrictions. And, you know, there's a lot of conversation to be had about conservation and whether or not we need to be watering lawns. And 
uh, the HOAs, the homeowners associations, what they require and all these things, right? Yep. But the bottom, bottom line is, is when we're talking about water supply in Lake Okeechobee, we're not just talking about water supply for growing vegetables and sugarcane. We're talking about water supply for human beings. Well, and, and I think it's important to note too, water restrictions on yards are the first step. Right. Right. Like that's not. And we were already there. Yeah. Yes. We're not saying, <laughs> well, the other option is we have brown yards. I, I'm all for having brown yards or natural yards or whatever. But if you took that off the table, there would still be a first step because it's impacting water supply for that municipality. Yes. And then a bigger note, and I, I think this is an important one that people miss. And it's a primary um, concern for people like you and I, right? really should be a primary concern for all people. Water supply for the environment. So just like letting the central Everglades, the water conservation areas, the stormwater treatment areas, uh, Big Cypress, all of those places get too wet, there are impacts when we let all of those places get too dry. And yes, there were dry downs in the natural system but that's very different than not having any water to send because we've used it all upstream and we have intentionally driven our backup supply dry. So for example, the Moonfish Fire in Water Conservation Area 3A, um, part of the Water Conservation Area 3A and the Big Cypress, like that whole region there, there was a, a fire called the Moonfish Fire. And that fire burned at a time when groundwater levels in the Everglades were a foot and a half below the ground. This is water that should have, this is land that should have water sitting on it all the time. Yeah. And you're saying the water level was a foot and a half below yeah, or or at the very least, it should have, it may not be visible on the surface, but the water level below ground should be higher. Gotcha. And, and, and the concern there is there's a fine line between fire in the Everglades, which is a fire dependent system. But again, it's all about timing and it's all about how nature intended that to work right. versus fire in the Everglades at the wrong time of year when there is no water underground, when the muck can then catch fire, when you then literally lose your soil and your Everglades. And yes. that's what we were flirting with this year. And it was a very dangerous situation. Well, I remember seeing, we talked about social media images earlier. I remember seeing social media images shared in the late spring, early summer of fish piled up into a particular pond with alligators laying on top of them or in the midst, like, like it was so dry. And yep. now we are at the other end of it. And what are we five months later, six months later, like from May, to, May to November. <laughs> and it just, I, I think it's illustrative of how complex the system is and how we try to oversimplify it. I'll say it this way in the name of fundraising or whatever, we try to sure. oversimplify it of these magic fixes or these magic bullets. And really it doesn't work that way. No, it really doesn't. And this is an issue um, with the politics of it. It's an issue with the, cottage industry that has been created um, around restoring the Everglades. You know, it, it's really easy. You've mentioned fundraising a couple of times, and I'm going to go ahead and, and uh, expand on that a bit. It's really easy to come in here and say, I'm going to save the Everglades, buy my t-shirt, attend my gala, 
donate for my, you know, for your birthday on Facebook, et cetera, et cetera. What's hard is to be involved in this conversation day in and day out and keep the pressure in the right places to make sure that Everglades restoration projects move forward, that you are the people questioning if an Everglades restoration project like WARP doesn't look like it's going the right direction. It's hard to do the work. And what I see happening on this landscape is a lot of people in the cottage industry of fundraising on a problem who don't necessarily care if the problem ever gets solved. Yeah. And you've been really careful in this interview to say you're not an expert because I'll, I'll, I'll call you one. Me and you, like like on my <laughs> list of friends, you know a lot of things about a lot of stuff, but you're not a scientist. You're not a, a, no, like a no. hydrologist. And but I, I want to say this. Hold on. I want to say this. <laughs> At the same time, you rolled up your sleeves and dug into this information. And within that cottage industry, it feels like there's a lot of people that say, hey, I want to be involved in saving the Everglades. What do I do? And suddenly the next thing you know, they're speaking at a thing. And and to be fair, like, let me, let me dial that back just one notch, right? To be fair, I get that, that, you know, the nonprofit world functions in a business sense too. I don't have any problem with people doing the work and getting paid reasonable salaries. I don't have any problem with, um, having nonprofits that that do have good scientific staff that that do get those reasonable salaries, et cetera. I have an issue when there are people making six figures off of this problem. Right. And and getting new houses and boats and all kinds of other things. And and those things are very definitely going on here. Right. That's where my line is drawn. So I just want to be be fair in that, you know, and, and I don't ever think one organization does good work all the time or bad work all the time. I think that in and of itself is a whole nother conversation. Um, I think that when you apply your voice to a problem, there is a responsibility to do so as factually and honestly as possible. And I see that missing in this conversation from an informed perspective. Thank you. That's what I was looking for. <laughs> yeah. Nyla, if people want to know more about this conversation, what you're like the conversation about water management in South Florida, about what you're doing with one Florida foundation, uh, Nyla is an artist. She won't talk about that, but she's a very talented artist. Uh, where can they find you, follow you, keep up with what you got going on? You're, you're very sweet and you're making me blush. Um, art is an outlet and it helps me to remember what it is I'm doing and why. <laughs> so I, I do dabble in the conservation art world. So if you want to look at my art, you can find me personally, Nyla Pipes, on Instagram. Um, I'm not a great Instagrammer. You're not going to be, you know. She posts like post. once a month on Instagram. Yeah. I'm just going to tell you all. <laughs> Social media is not really my thing, which is terrible for an advocate. Um, but on that note, with One Florida Foundation, we do have OneFloridaFoundation.org. If you want to look at our website and dig in further, um, there, there are a lot of links to, you know, the various agencies involved and the various topics that we've discussed today. Uh, it's a great place, in my humble opinion. I think we've put together a nice little one-stop one resource there for people who want to learn more um, about the problems and the solutions. Um, 
One Florida also has a Facebook page. We're really active there. I have a One Florida Instagram. I don't think I've posted since like 2014. I'm trying to get better at that. <laughs> I, I also have a Twitter and I don't tweet. So, you know, Facebook is, is really your best bet um, for One Florida. And, and I do some work on my personal page as well. So, you know, if, if you want to get to know me and don't mind the occasional picture of my daughter making cookies. Hey, that's, that's another avenue. <laughs> Nyla, thank you so much for all that you're doing for uh, just from an accountability standpoint and from an authenticity standpoint, from, from keeping the truth at the top and, and for pushing for better change for, uh, in my opinion, you're pushing for better change for all stakeholders, for all Floridians. And I appreciate that. Well, I appreciate that compliment because, you know, that's why we were named One Florida. We're all in it together and we're not going to make meaningful change if we don't work together and make sure that everyone has a voice at the table. Thanks for listening to Cast and Blast Florida. We hope you enjoyed this bonus episode with Nyla Pipes. Thank you so much, Nyla, for giving us some of your time and for all the hard work you do day in and day out on Florida's water and conservation. As always, we appreciate you listening to the show. If it's your first time listening, how about leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts? Very specific, I know. But somehow there's some magic out there that makes it easier for people to find us and really helps the show out. If you leave us a review, five stars on Apple Podcasts, you can do that from any Apple device or from Apple Podcasts installed on any computer. In the meantime, we hope everyone's having a great weekend. Duck season opened, and we will be back Tuesday to talk to all of you guys and gals, and hope everyone has a great weekend. 